This is Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco. This is your host, Jamal Dejan, and my co-host, Dr. Jess Ghanem, is traveling this week. But we are very delighted today. We're going to be talking about food and politics with no other than... Blanche Shaheen, you know, she's uh, she's been here on the show many times, but this time we're very excited. And of course, we cannot show a book on uh, on the air, uh, on radio, but we can show it on Facebook Live. This is the cover of the Ooh. book. <laughs> and uh, so Blanche, um, she finally has published her cookbook. And uh, it's Feast in the Middle East, a personal journey of family and cuisine. And this is a long-awaited, I think, uh, book that we've been talking about. And it's a comprehensive book, a landmark culinary reference for Middle Eastern classics, many of which one cannot find in restaurants nor cooking schools. Congratulations. I really want to congratulate you on, on having the book. I mean... It's really like such a delight to have you with us here. It's such a delight to kind of like watch you develop, like <laughs> in a way, a you know, and for many of our listeners who don't know Blanche, she's been on the show several times. Blanche is a journalist for, for many, many years. We worked to the, together, so she's a friend and she's also a former colleague, but also somehow she found a new talent. <laughs> You know, which yeah, is great, and, 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 and it's exactly and you, the, your love of cooking and family recipes, and then finally this cookbook. How do you feel about it? I'm ecstatic. It's been 10 years, and yeah, I mean, it's been really fun just checking in with you every, every now and then. Uh, I, I miss our times working together, so it's been neat to share this journey with you, Jamal. Uh, I'm finally ecstatic because it... It was a very long struggle. I mean, just to put the, the recipes together, to test, to retest, look up the historical significance of all the recipes, taught, bring in family anecdotes to make it really personal. And everyone wants the beautiful pictures, right? So just getting these these pictures uh, was, was in and of itself a, 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 an extraordinary task. But here it is. It's done. It's an anthology almost. It has the classics. It has modern interpretations so that if there's somebody that uh, wants to keep the tradition alive in their family, they've got the tool that they need to do that. And it's, th- it's in time for the holidays. Yeah. So for people <laughs> to actually have a, a book. Yeah, listen, I, I mean, again, I, I commend you on this. I love food. <laughs> uh, I'm actually, when you say personal journey, I think I've done many personal journeys into culinary cuisine. The only difference between you and me is that you know how to cook and I don't. <laughs> and I gain weight and you don't. <laughs> so so that's, that's the, those are the main differences. Oh, um, but our love, of course, of Middle Eastern food is, is, is shared. And uh, also the focus, and you've traveled quite a bit. This, these are based on... Your family connection to the land, mm-hmm. uh, to Palestine, to Ramallah, uh, your grandparents' recipes that kind of made their way here, mm-hmm. which is great. I mean, to kind of like rediscover these mm-hmm. and make sure that this tradition is not lost. Well, absolutely, especially with today's busy lifestyles. Everybody's super busy. They don't have time to do what like Artetas did and spend four hours to make a pot of like stuffed squash, which is what they would normally do, right? So I really tried to streamline as much as possible. Sometimes I'd put like five steps in one, you know, like for musakhan, instead of going and musakhan is the, the chicken with caramelized onions baked on bread. They used to make the bread from scratch and put it in the underground oven and then do catch the chicken and do all that stuff. I, I streamlined it so that you could probably make it in under an hour. And now mm-hmm. I have like some of my, my best friend is Vietnamese. She knows how to make it and, and she, her family loves it. So, I mean, it, it just brings me so much joy to see that this is a global cooking community now and people are sharing in the love of Middle Eastern food. Palestinian dishes that are from remote villages are being brought alive and uh, shared in a global community in this fashion. And so. then the other thing I want to mention is that this did not come out of nothing right right <laughs> so you've been on the air basically on your own youtube channel right 
and uh, cooking for past 10 years, right? Yeah, yeah, for it's past a, 10 years. It's yeah, been it's like been 10 years, time. so you've been experimenting, you've been cooking, you've been getting feedback, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I just basically want to ask the, you know, on the decision, uh, like what recipes went into the book versus because, you know, in 10 years, like how many recipes have you cooked? Oh, like so many. And then it's a building blocks. Like you said, sometimes people will be like, well, can you learn, can you teach us how to make this from Syria? or teach us how to make that from Lebanon. And sometimes it was like, well, you know what? I've never even made that, but I'm going to figure out, I'm gonna do some research, I'm gonna do a lot of recipe testing, and then the best recipe I could possibly find, I'm gonna put in this book. And so it has been a collaboration because of my YouTube channel to get this feedback from people all over the world. That's what's made it really special is that it's not just, you know, something from my family. It's, it's definitely been uh, like a, cooking community from all over the world and they've all contributed in their own way and so I make sure to thank uh, my YouTuber, my YouTube family uh, in And what's book. your channel again for our, uh, our <laughs> yeah, listeners? Yeah, so if they want to find uh, my channel on YouTube, so it's youtube.com slash Blanche TV so that's B-L-A-N-C-H-E TV so they can find that and they could go to feastinthemiddleeast.com of course to get And, and where can I get the book? So if you want to go to the book, the best way right now is to go to feastinthemiddleeast.com and I tell you exactly the instructions and right now I'll give them a discount uh, if they use promo code uh, FRIENDS10 they can get 10% off. Oh Oh, this is great, yeah. and, but then it's also available on other platforms, Amazon, etc. Yeah, it, it is available, but to be honest, it's uh, best to buy it's directly. It's best to buy it directly. <laughs> to get I, it. I like to uh, circumvent Jeff Pesos at all costs. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's also For very, very, very costly, also. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Amazon takes like seventy percent of every sale, so it's uh, they're not very kind to authors. Unfortunately. So uh, I know you've just come back from actually traveling to Palestine. Yes. And uh, you go there frequently. Mm -hmm. You go there for, two, I guess, several purposes, like every one of us, but added an extra layer is your love for for cooking. Absolutely. To walk in the souks and the markets and mm -hmm. smell the spices and discover new recipes mm -hmm. and the attachment to the land. Uh, I just actually, just the other day, I was talking to somebody who actually came back right. and who just participated in the olive harvest. Oh, that's what I participated in yeah. too. It was so, incredible. So it was like, oh, wow, it kind of like, he says it was... Uh, it's a it's a friend of mine, and I said, "Well, how did this feel?" Because I actually have never been out there to pick up olives, mm -hmm. and then he said it was his therapy. It is therapy. Yeah, he said I he agree. said it was just like for me doing the labor, being connection with the land, and then taking the olives to the press with the people and watch them. So you know, he's, he he knew nothing about it basically. Mm -hmm. just, oh, so he went. He, he just like he anything, just yeah. he just happened to be there, and yeah. it's just kind of like some of his family members were were doing it and said, would you like to tag along? And he ended up doing three days or four days worth of work. Lucky guy. <laughs> and he said, yeah, I, I used to come back exhausted and sweaty, but I loved every minute of it. Absolutely. It, it is a beautiful tradition uh, that's shared with Palestinian families. So I always tell people that the olive trees are like an extension of the Palestinian family. People value these trees. They take care of these trees. They've been in the, in, uh, in the family for generations. Some of them are hundreds and hundreds of years old. And the families get together. I actually did a recent video on my channel, my, my latest video. Uh, I documented a day in the life of an olive, olive harvest. And it could be literally the most beautiful day of one's life. And it can also be the saddest one day as well. Because... Uh, uh, the uh, colonizers that are surrounding these uh, olive harvests, Israeli colonizers, have actually stepped up the violence three times more this year than any year prior. And it, it actually, it, it, it just saddens me so much because it is, it, it's really a simple activity where Palestinians are one with the land and uh, they get their family together, they harvest all day, they make the most incredible olive oil you've ever tasted. So what, part of my, uh, my mission on my channel is to support these farmers through various ways, from guiding people to websites where they can buy the Palestinian olive oil, uh, to just increasing awareness about what happens in these harvests. I mean, what happens is their, their harvest gets stolen, they 
get attacked. Um, solidarity activists uh, that come get attacked as well, even if they're Israeli. So there are, there are Israeli peace activists that come to protect the Palestinian harvesters, and, and, and many, they get attacked as well. Yeah, really and many sad. internationalists, and this is a sad thing that be, because yeah. we did cover this many times, we talked about it. Yeah. That uh, when you think about the work that goes into um, growing these olive trees mm -hmm. and the years mm -hmm. that they have when these uh, settlers basically invade the land, they, right. they destroy them. They burn them. They burn them, the trees. They, they saw the trees. them down in front of the farmers. Yes, yes, like, to kind of drive them away, you know, from from the land. And, yeah. and I'm it's like, like a decapitation of a family member. And it's like, and it, it sickens me when I see them take pleasure in doing that and the, the anguish in the faces, the sadness of the Palestinians, the families, the farmers. Uh, there's got to be a better way. I mean, this, got, this has to stop. It's just uh, unbelievable. It's horrible even for, they say they're environmentalists and they're doing this kind of thing. It's just a complete oxymoron. You can't be an environmentalist and destroy millions of olive trees at the same time. You said the olive tree is, I, I call it kind of like the source of life for Palestinians. It really is. I mean, it goes to biblical times, to the time of, uh, of course, Jesus Christ. And there's a lot of connection mm -hmm. with even pre kind of uh, monolithic religion. Exactly. Uh, the olive uh, oil has been used in rituals and, of course, food. So Even medicinal purposes. I mean, this, I mean exactly. they use olive oil to cure everything from the common cold to skin sores yeah. to everything. So how much olive yeah. oil is in your book? <laughs> so, <laughs> that's that's so the question. It should be dripping. Like, it should be dripping should olive be dri oil. <laughs> because, like, how much olive oil do we, do we use in these recipes when you cook, like, moussachan for our listener, moussachan is like a chicken that is really it's soaked, soaking with soaking olive oil, with olive sumac, oil. and and the uh, onion, right? right? Mm -hmm. And then the bread itself kind it's of captured it. Soaked in olive oil, and yeah. And then so many, so many recipes, and not, not to mention that our breakfast includes olive oil and zaatar right. and just herbs, right? Right. So how, how many do you, you just, if you, take, <laughs> if you took a wild guess, like how many recipes do you have uh, that calls for, as an ingredient, olive oil? I'd say 75%. <laughs> and you know, it's really funny you mention this because, Jamal, being Palestinian, yeah. we know it's intrinsic to us. We cook with it. And then we have, there's like a movement of people that are like, how dare you cook with olive oil? It's going to denature the olive oil and destroy the properties and it's harmful, blah, blah, blah. How old is your mom? How <laughs> my mom is 92 years old. You're 92. How old is my grandma? 97. How old? I mean, most of the people in our family, they get to be in their 90s. Pal I mean, it's Israel's worst nightmare that Palestinians live in their 90s. And and it, part of it is the olive oil, and we cook with it, and it doesn't, for me, the proof is in that, you know? Yeah. Well, I, I mean, not only this, but <laughs> people claim it's, it's uh, we use, like, soap made out of olive oil. Exactly. And some products, you know, it's good for your skin, it's good mm -hmm. for your hair, it's good for, like, Everything, everything for your kidneys and mm -hmm. and it's part of uh, our culture and we look at it really like you know this is the thing uh, we look at it like good wine absolutely in a way so like when you taste like crappy olive oil like uh, off the it's it, awful. automatically for us it's like it's what's like, this what is this i'm yeah. not going to put this in my food yeah and i guess yeah. other cultures would be like the italians and the greeks uh, they also take a lot of pride uh, absolutely yeah. in the olive oil so um the thing, though, with all Palestinian olive oils, when you get true Palestinian olive oil, you're going to know it's not adulterated. So I wrote several articles on this, and I've done done a lot of research on olive oil. And there is a, a huge counterfeit uh, system for olive oil, sadly, coming out of uh, Italy and Greece. Uh, they mix the olive oil with other kinds of, like, base, very cheap kinds of oils. Yeah, I think it's yeah, promised. you're absolutely right, and so uh, so people get a very bad quality, thinking they're paying top dollar to get, thinking they're getting the good quality. Palestinian olive oil, it's it's picked there, it's it's uh, hand pressed at the source, and if you go to like. Can uh, unfair trade, Zaytun.org, Equal Exchange now is selling olive oil. Uh, fair trade, you know you're getting a top quality product. So I know yeah. we. We're going to be calling this show Food and Politics. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, we just finished, actually, you know, of course, one of the biggest holidays in this country is Thanksgiving. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is when you mix food really with politics. That's and true, then hope yeah. you don't alienate 
your cousin that you see once a year, you know. Right, yeah. You know, as long as you keep that conversation <laughs> civil. But for Palestinians, I, I have never been on a Palestinian table mm-hmm. when Palestinians did not discuss food, that right. they were eating and enjoying it, mm-hmm. and also discuss politics. Have yeah. you? Yeah, no, I, mean, I haven't. It's, it's kind, kind of, of intrinsic to our, our I mean, even even if we don't want to get political, if somebody finds out you're Palestinian, they're going to start getting political. They'll start asking you questions. You. Yeah, they start asking you a lot of questions about where you're from and all and So your last your trip? Yes. And uh, you went uh, with a group of friends, and some of them were journalists and so forth. And um, actually, we saw each other just a few days before. You were kind enough to come and talk in one of my classes at SFSU. Yeah. And so I wanted to get some impressions, uh, not as much as your own, because you kind of like you've been there, you've seen it, just from those people who went there for the very first time. Uh, The consensus among everyone that went there for the very first time was that they had no idea that the human rights violations were so egregious. Uh, They thought that it was absolutely criminal. Um, For them, it's like, okay, you can you can talk about politics, you can talk about coming up with a political solution, but even if you shelve that, the top priority should be the elimination of human rights violations committed against the Palestinians on a day-to-day basis. Things like a lot of did you know moments, like did you know that Palestinians that live in Yaffa, for example, are considered Israeli citizens and they pay taxes for everything, yet are don't get garbage collection, they don't get the same kind of educational system, they don't get the same health care system simply because they're Palestinian? Or did you know that Palestinians will only get running water three times a week, whereas Israelis don't? And so they have to uh, oftentimes even pay taxes or pay municipality, and they only get, they all have to have water tanks above the houses to store water because they don't get water every day, mm-hmm. while they'll have swimming pools and uh, green grass on the other side simply because they're a different religion. Things like that, just a Families are, are torn apart from each other. Hebron is still an, an absolute mess. Yeah. Hebron is probably, if anyone wants to know what the human rights violations are, they should just pay a visit to Hebron, and, and it speaks for itself. I mean, it's, jaw, it's jaw-dropping and mind-blowing how bad it is over there. Well, two things that I like about your trips, uh, that, you know, your trips uh, don't go with a, a pre-assumptions. Right. And then have, uh, and you include people who don't have, kind of like they haven't made up their mind. Or mm-hmm. some of them may be like they've made up their minds through the media, you right. know. And then you don't steer them mm-hmm. because, uh, and I, I, because I know I've, I've spoken to so many people who have been on the Israeli-sponsored or APEC and APEC-sponsored Hasbara tours. Right. Where people are steered to go to Tel Aviv and avoid... Uh, Palestinian towns and villages uh, mm-hmm. or told in advance, don't go there, it's dangerous, right. they're going to hurt you. So when, you, when, so when you take the people and they get like face-to-face with the Palestinians, what's their first impression? Yeah. And then when they cross like something like Kalandia, mm-hmm. for our listeners who probably, many of them are familiar with this, is kind of like the, one of the biggest checkpoints that you have to cross between the West Bank right. and Jerusalem and then line up behind Hundreds of cars, you know, to be kind of like cattle, like cattle, like livestock, and they get held up to go to work six hours. I mean, a tour guide, a Palestinian tour guide whose job starts at nine will have to get up at 430 in the morning for a half an hour trip normally because of the checkpoints that are enforced, even though he's technically an Israeli citizen. Um, And that's what really, really affected everyone is like, as Palestinians, they have to have five different kinds of IDs to label what kind of a Palestinian are you? Because we need to make sure we restrict your movement, restrict your rights, restrict your freedoms based on your ID, which you have to wear with you at all times. And if you don't, if you don't bring your ID with you, you're out of luck. If you get caught by any soldiers, you can get end up jailed. You could end up uh, humiliated, tortured. I mean, it's it, it's an unpredictable day that day that you don't remember your identification. So when people you know? who are not familiar with this, they go through it for the very first time. Is this when were these the turning points? What were the turning points? I would say that people came and say, "Wow, gee." 
Blanche, we didn't know. I mean, we've, we've seen it kind of like it hit them right in the face. Well, the, the water restriction was really mind-blowing. Like, they couldn't believe that people could only have, you know, three days of water. Uh, when we went to visit Al-Aqsa Mosque, we took them to the Wailing Wall and Al-Aqsa Mosque, and mm. they got to experience the Wailing Wall. And then Al-Aqsa, though, they noticed... Uh, Several times a day, there were these uh, Israeli extremists that were guarded by a ton of military that were walking around the compound to incite people. And they were like, what is this? What is going on? It's, I said, well, can you imagine if like Muslims came with militias to the Wailing Wall several times a day to incite people? I mean, well, could you imagine how crazy that would be? Listen, last time I was there, I was actually in the old city. Mm-hmm. And we were crossing, this is from the uh, neighborhood called Hart al-Maghrabi, yeah. which is the Moroccan quarter where you, where you can come from inside the old city, from the back way, you mm-hmm. can go through the Wailing Wall and you could go up the ramp into Al-Aqsa. Right. So I was with, with actually my best friend uh, walking there and uh, we came to a checkpoint, right? Mm-hmm. Just before you enter there. Yeah. And then they, they said, uh, they, they, they actually didn't look at me because my wife, uh, you know, she's from the States. She's blonde. She looks she's, like totally she's white. She's totally white. white. Yeah. So they just like let us pass through and they stopped my friend because he looked Palestinians. Wow. And then we stood by on the side and say, hey, uh, we're just going. We're just going through the Wailing Wall. We're going, you know, actually, we weren't even heading to the Al-Aqsa. We were heading to the Armenian Quarter. Right. So we're I going there. And, you know, and, and they uh, because it's a shortcut. Otherwise, you have to go through uh, the Christian quarter up the stairs. And, you know, and they said, you two can't pass like, you know, but he cannot. And I'm like, wow. this guy was born and raised in Jerusalem. He's a, he has a Jerusalem. You know, they, and then they asked him, What's, show us your ID. Of course, his ID is a Jerusalem ID. It's an Israeli ID. Mm-hmm. But it says that he is an Arab on mm-hmm. it. It's like a clear and they said, no, no, you cannot take this. This is only for Jews. You have to go take the long route. And then I said, well, I'm not, you know, Jewish. And they said, it doesn't matter. It's like you're American or you're tourist or something like this. It's terrible. Well, so, see, that, that, that's mind-blowing for Americans so, who have been told that no, they have uh, equal rights as yeah, Israelis. Yeah, you know? so it was totally like blatant, like racism, like saying on the lines of uh, religion, mm-hmm. you can pass, but... They, he cannot he pass. He cannot pass. Yeah, and and it was, and so of course we didn't go. We went back with him, and took the the long route because we weren't allowed. So it's kind of like it reminded me. But when they complained that Jewish uh, colonial settlers are allowed to go to basically antagonize the worshippers on Al Aqsa, mm-hmm. protected by Israeli, uh, uh, riot, those are mili- riot police and riot po- military. Uh, yeah, riot police. Yeah. When I don't know if you've noticed, but when before you go, if you go on the other side of the Wailing Wall, these uh, extremist settlers, they have a stand, and the stand they have a a like a replacement solution wow. for the Dome of, and they have this old temple. <laughs> Well, they have they have posters. Thing. They have posters everywhere where the the Al Aqsa is obliterated, exactly. and they put the temple but in its exactly. place. Exactly. So right? you go there. I mean, this is yeah. where they gather, and this is yeah. like they're telling you, like one day we want to take over, we want to destroy Al Aqsa, and we want to build a, a temple there. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. And then they wonder why Palestinians <laughs> get worked up when they see them there. Like, you know, what did we do? We didn't do anything. Yeah, and then they no say, just we just want to blow up your place of worship. No, and no, and, then, and exactly, else. and this is what they go and they say, they say, and this is what really, like, really uh, irritates me is when you hear, uh, uh, you know, their propagandists on the air, they say, Jerusalem is open to all religions. Sure. You know, uh, but uh, it's the Palestinians who don't want to allow Jews to go to the uh, Holy Sepulchre, and they don't want to allow them, you know. And they don't talk about, uh, to the, uh, you know, to the Al-Aqsa Mosque, and they don't talk about all the, the, the acts incitement of the incitement <laughs> and, and the fear that they create. Yeah, it's really sad. Well, one one poignant moment where, where you, you, you mentioned like that one moment was we had a, an African-American reverend with us. And he had been on one of those trips to Israel before where he felt restricted. And the tour guide would not let him go to a Christian Palestinian's bookstore. He wanted to visit him because he had communicated. He's like, can I go to the, he's like, no, you are not allowed to go to that bookstore. You have to go where we're taking you. And he felt like he w- his movement was restricted everywhere and he wasn't seeing the full picture. 
And so he welcomed the opportunity to come see the Palestinian side a few months later. Mm -hmm. And he walked walk through the empty streets of Hebron where the streets are completely closed to Palestinians, where Palestinians can't even like go out their front to the front of their home. They have to take a ladder to the back of their home because of their religion, because it's blocked off by extremists. He said he felt like it was the Jim Crow era of the 1960s and he wept. Like he started crying. He was like, this is bringing back so many memories for me, times I do not want to remember. And it's happening here on a much larger and grander scale. And I can't believe that I'm experiencing this right now. And it was really, I mean, it was, I broke down, he broke down. It was a really tough time uh, for both of us. Uh, and I felt this kindred spirit with him because of the just history of suffering uh, based on who you are, you know? Our guest for the entire hour is uh, journalist, now author, Blanche Shaheen. And we're talking about food and politics. Her book, her new book, Feast in the Middle East, A Personal Journey of Family and Cuisine. And you can get it on right on her website. Uh, and we're going to be talking to her for the entire hour, and we would want to also welcome our viewers on Facebook Live. This is Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco, 89.5 FM. So let's talk a little bit about the food in the book, and especially since this is a holiday season and people are coming. I mean, this is the time when you gain weight, right? I mean, this is <laughs> not if you, you eat Mediterranean. Not food. if you eat Mediterranean. <laughs> I don't know. I'm having this problem, especially when I flip the pages and I come to the kinafa part. Oh, and the, you saw the kinafa page and, and, and yeah, the dessert yeah, yeah. and the dessert uh, part there and all. So I know. Actually, we talked about it last time. Mm -hmm. uh, just this past uh, few days ago, you had the sand. Uh, Barbara holiday, which is we talked about the Burbara. That's right. That's right. right. It's a really special holiday. And this is something like people don't like, you know, like if you haven't been to Palestine or you haven't been to Bilad Sham, which is the basically the Levant and, and, and greater Syria region, people don't understand why, you know, like, okay, we have so many saints. Why do you kind of like you guys focus on this particular saint and then you have right. a dessert? Named, Named after, after her. her. Yeah, it's an interesting story. So uh, Burbara is Arabic for Barbara. So it's named, it's the Feast of Santa Barbara. And I think the story originated in Damascus, in Syria, uh, to be exact. But uh, so what we do is we make a porridge called Burbara to commemorate her. And apparently this recipe I learned is 2,000 years old. And it's made not only in the Arab countries, but in Malta and Cyprus and a lot of the Christian Orthodox countries. The story goes, it's, it's a wheat berry porridge, and the story goes to flee persecution because her father was going to kill her for believing in Jesus. She escaped through a wheat field, and apparently the wheat grew behind her to hide her footsteps so that they couldn't find her. And so what a lot of Orthodox Christians do is they actually grow the wheat berries on plates, and they place them around their Christmas tree, and it, it grows like beautiful grass shoots. Right. So my great-grandmother, uh, my great-grandmother, my great-aunt used to do that. And so we make the burbato, which is so we eat berry porridge and we top it with pomegranates, coconut, walnuts, uh, pe uh, uh, sometimes fennel, uh, chocolate-covered fennel. And and so it's a, it's usually, I mean, I just went to church uh, at an Orthodox Mass this past Sunday and they were serving burbada as a fundraiser for, for the people that went there. It's a you, special you, little you, tradition. You notice that I've started with the sweet stuff. Yeah, I know. You have a sweet tooth like me. That's why I love you, Jamal. I started this because when I'm thinking holidays, yeah. okay, we start with this. This is kind of like the pre, you know, like I like how you describe it as a porridge. I look at it more like as a dessert. It I is kind of dessert. like a Dessert, and yeah. it's kind of like, oh yeah, it's a healthy cereal. But kind it's of. healthy, it though. Is, yeah, right? sweet. And, and a lot and of fiber. I know, I know. And I was like, okay, this yeah. is like the, the kind of like the precursor, right. because then we move on, and then we have kaku mamul mm -hmm. and kinafe yeah. and all these good stuff, right? Mm -hmm. Because now we're getting close to Christmas, and what, of course, some of our listeners may not know that. For example, in Jerusalem, we celebrate Christmas three times. That's right. <laughs> so we have the traditional uh, Gregorian calendar Christmas, mm -hmm. the Catholics celebrate. Then we have the Greek Orthodox Christmas, I think January 7th mm -hmm. or, or approximately, and then followed by the Armenian Christmas. That's right. So it's kind of like 
The holiday season is two months. Yeah, it it's is. It like goes on from the beginning of December to the end of January. Yeah. Where you just like visit people. And every time you visit them, of course, if you're not invited to dinner, which is that's a big feast by itself. Mm -hmm. You know, so even if you stop by for coffee, what they're going to serve you? Sweets. Kinefe, uh, uh, kaku mamur, yeah. things like this. Yeah. So And kinefe, I made sure. I mean, it's a very special page yeah, in this book. Yeah, so let's talk about kinefe. I'm, I'm just like yeah. kind of like giving you an intro. I'm obsessed with kinefe. Everybody that knows and, me and, and, knows and I'm obsessed with kinefe. So, so I so. know you must have, did you go to Nablus? Yes, we absolutely went to Nablus. Okay, and then where did you go? So, like, Nablus, so, tease so, me, tell okay, me what. Okay, I need to tell what, you. Place did you go to? Okay, then? so with my group, I you know I found a place. A Nablus baker ended up opening a bakery in Ramallah, and it's called Al Akkar. Have you been there? You not must only, go. Not, not only have I been there, <laughs> but I actually lived about a block away from there when I spent <gasps> a year my my oh, apartment. Are you serious? Because if you remember there, that's, that's right by the, the Millennium Hotel, and also the government offices that's and all right. these things. So my apartment here is Al Akkar. That little shopping center has a supermarket, that's right. so that's where I got because I had my bachelor life, so I went to the supermarket there, had my barber, I had a, had a bakery where they served uh, muajjanat. Oh, like a bake, like a bread-like thing. Yeah, like yeah, sabanich like and cheese and all these things. Spinach pies, meat yeah. pies. Uh, and yeah. al-akir. Like <laughs> so I didn't have to go anywhere else. <laughs> so I know. I know that. Yes. Okay, so my group, uh, so what they did was they took the Nablus. The Nablus bakers originated this dessert. So they have the world record of making the biggest kanafa on the planet. It's basically, for those who don't know what it is, it's basically like a sweet uh, sheep's cheese that's melted, and it has a buttery layer of shredded phyllo on top with a sugar syrup and uh, and pistachios on top of that. So uh, <laughs> the, these bakers went and opened the mag most magnificent bakery in Ramallah and I told my group, listen guys, it's six o'clock at night. We could either eat dinner or we could go for like a 20 minute hike in the dark to get to and eat this uh, sweet. And they all wanted to come with me to hike to get to Al Akir. So we all went. We got there at like seven o'clock. We all ordered two slices each. We slammed it and walked back. They they almost cried. It was almost like a, a religious experience. Some of them said they either want to move to Palestine or they want to become Palestinians to it. eat it. And so I tried to console them. I said, you know, the I know you guys are scattered all over the United States. And the by best the way, my favorite there is the <laughs> Khishne. Oh yeah. The me too. Ones. Me yeah. too. The grainy. It's, so, um, so you could have either like a like a coarse dough that's really shredded, or you could have it ground more fine. But everybody loved the shredded one, just like you. And you could get it now at Trader Joe's, but it's not the same uh, effect. <laughs> I tried it. I've tried. Actually, yeah. <laughs> actually, a friend of mine conned me with one, and he said, "You know what?" And by the way, the one at Trader Joe's, it's. Uh, it's not really kinaf, it's katayifi. Mm -hmm. And I look, it's actually, they bring it out from Greece. Which yes, gr the Greeks, they Greece. make katayifi, which is uh, the shredded, they use the same thing, but right. it's too sweet and they don't use our cheese. Right, not the sheep's and, milk yeah, cheese. So it's, eh, it's kind yeah. of like, yeah. yeah. but some people said, it, well, if you, if you can't get it, this is the one. And by the way, for our viewers on uh, Facebook Live, this is the kinafi and of course, uh, right. Blanche and, uh, and your mother. Yeah, yes. and, and you know, our guest for the entire hour is Blanche Shaheen. Her new cookbook, Feast in the Middle East, you can get it right on her website or on Amazon and other places. Uh, I'm sure uh, in other bookstores, right? That they can yeah, get it they from. Yeah, will be. It's not in bookstores quite yet, but if they want to get it like ASAP, they could just go to feastinthemiddleeast.com. And yeah. what about your cooking show? How is that going? Yeah, so that's going really well. Um, I'm going to be uh, churning out more recipes that are reflective of other regions too. So I did one recently on Iraq <laughs> because I wanted to kind of like you know, people just associate these countries with war, sadly. Another one I want to work on is Yemen. I want to bring some Yemenese dishes because I know they're just dealing with hell on earth right now in Yemen. Coffee. Pardon me? <laughs> Coffee, the best coffee in the world. Well, co coffee originated in Yemen. I mean, people think that it originated in Turkey. Turkey made it popular, but the original coffee beans came out of Yemen. Actually, I'm just going to correct that a little bit. because Okay, go ahead, go ahead, go but ahead. Is, but it's your, your, your close. I found out that actually the coffee bean itself came out of uh, Ethiopia. 
Interesting. And then if you look at the map, right, mm -hmm. and you look at Eritrea now and Ethiopia, which mm -hmm. is, was part of the old ancient uh, kingdom of Abyssinia. It was one big kingdom. Mm -hmm. And this is where up to even through today, you just have to cross the very narrow straits to, right. to basically cross from the Arabian Peninsula to Africa. Mm -hmm. And so the beans, they were brought just like, it's almost like you're crossing from San Francisco to Berkeley, right? Oh, so it's, it's not, that's not it's very not, far. It's not yeah, that it's far. Not far. So this is between the, you know, the basically two continents because uh, the uh, Arabian Peninsula is in technically is in Asia and that's Africa. Right. And so the wild beans were from there. And then it was the Arabs in, in Yemen and that whole area that figured this whole roasting process and... And brought the coffee yeah, out. So, yeah, so that's kind of the, the story. So we have to credit Yemen for, for Starbucks. Come yeah, I mean, for everything. Really do, for, for a lot. And, and, and people don't know this, you know, they just... Right now they're suffering terribly. So I'd like to, on my show, uh, bring about more of the other regions. I've done Morocco, for example, and... Um, and yeah, I just, I want to expand it. I, I want people So here's an idea. Yeah. Could you think about, uh, for example, producing these shows on site? Yes. Because you love to travel, right? Oh, I, I absolutely and do. And so when you want to talk about Moroccan cuisine, instead of doing, I know you do it in, out of your own kitchen, right? Mm -hmm. It's kind of, it's taking the set to Morocco. Actually, it's funny that you say that because and I was thinking about going in the fall of 2020 to Morocco to, to do some food series from there because I have a potential opportunity. Uh, so it's funny. It's, you're very intuitive, Jamal. <laughs> you're super and it's a, intuitive. And it's a beautiful country. I mean, I've been there. And Lucky they have, you. I have yeah, never no, been no, there. And it's, it's a beautiful country. I mean, what people don't know, I was talking to somebody about Morocco the other day, and I said, this is the only country, actually, like as far as in, in the Middle East and North Africa, mm -hmm. where you can go to a seafood restaurant and order seafood from the Mediterranean or the Atlantic oh. on the same on the same menu card Amazing. because Morocco is right right there, right, right at there. the crossroads. So you know, like this is where people are not familiar. Just right at the tip is Gibraltar, so mm -hmm. that's kind of what connects. Which the, is the, amazing. Yeah. So yeah. The, you can you can go. Let's say if you're in Tangier. Mm -hmm. And you can order, they'll ask you, do you want Atlantic food or do you want, uh, you know, Atlantic fish or, or uh, Mediterranean? I'd probably opt for the Mediterranean myself. You know what I mean? Yeah, for but sure. for people, like, you could get actually swordfish. Yeah, yeah. And you could get uh, lo'oz. Lo'oz, that's the uh, the native fish to the Mediterranean. Mediterranean, yeah. yeah. See, you, you're, you're beating me on the foodie front here. <laughs> well, I told you, this is the difference, is we both had our own personal journey. True. Uh, when it comes to both politics and food. and food, the only difference is that you know how to cook. I don't. <laughs> That's okay. You could do the eating part. And I do the eating part. <laughs> <laughs> the eating part's always awesome. Um, well, the thing is, uh, I when people first found out that I was going to make a transition from journalism to food, they thought I was absolutely crazy. Because people, right now, people only associate me with food. They don't even associate me with journalism anymore, which is kind of sad because that's still a huge passion of mine. Yeah, but it's also but, journalism because what you're doing when you put it in a book, right. you do a lot of research. A ton. You traveling. Right. Right? Absolutely. And actually, to my fellow journals, you can't BS yeah. As much <laughs> because people are going to take your recipe and right. they're going to try it. And right. it's either going to be, it's going to work or it's not going to work, right? Yeah. You know, like, so you cannot stretch the facts and no, you like can't. some journalists here no, no, you do can't. all the time. No, you can't. And unfortunately, there is still a plenty of BS in mainstream media. And so it kind of, actually, when I became disheartened with the direction of mainstream media, it seemed a natural direction for me to kind of take a break from all that, to focus on food and research food. So uh, it like when I say anthology, I, I kind of mean it. I mean, this book isn't just about about cooking, it's it's delving into the research behind a lot of the dishes so that people have an additional perspective. And it's not just about food. And food does bring people together that normally wouldn't be together, which is what I like too. Um, and so it's even uh, caused a lot of collaborations and conversations uh, from people who are like, well, I thought this was 
I didn't know this was Palestinian. And I'm like, well, yes, it is. And I'll tell you why. You know, stuff like it's, it's created a lot of conversations. Now you're steering me towards food appropriation. Yeah. <laughs> Just like cultural appropriation. Right. appropriation. Right. How maddening is it uh, to see like when... Kinafi now, sometimes people say it's Israeli kinafi. And before right. we used to make a joke about Israeli falafel. And now they're even going like kinafi mm-hmm. or anything like this, uh, our recipes. Or uh, the Northern African, uh, Moroccan, Tunisian, Algerian, shakshuka right. is now Israeli. Right. You know, shakshuka. Well, that, that's kind of part of the reason why I wrote this book was because I wanted to call a spade a spade and do the actual research and talk about the origin of all of these Arabic words, uh, where they came from. And so that's what I do. I actually did. I talk about shakshuka. There is a recipe for shakshuka in my book, and it's North African origins. Mm -hmm. And of course, I go into Kanafa and talk about its Palestinian origins and hummus, that hummus is actually an Arabic word that means chickpeas. Mm -hmm. Um, And and so, so... For me, it's like the best route to this is to actually research the facts and the facts don't lie. And when you have enough substantiated facts, you really can't argue with it. I mean, that's great. If you really love the cuisine and you want to call it your own, you can do that, I guess. I mean, no one's going to stop you. But when it comes to actually looking at the, the origins, the factual origins, that's what I do in this book. And that, that's, that was a big passion of so mine. So do you get challenged? I mean, to be like, honest, like when you uh, uh, not just because the book I know it's it's new, right. but on your um, food show on YouTube, and then you talk about the origins, and people make some crazy comments and say, right, oh, this is right. Well, or this is that. The, the way I get challenged, uh, I've had a, quite a bit of I've I've had my share of hate, hate mail from people saying, you know what, you don't exist, your food doesn't exist. Palestinians don't exist. And I'm just like, you know what? My family's been there. I I can actually find the 500-year-old house where my family's from. And so, I, you know, I challenge a lot of people who say that to me to do the same. I mean, you can talk about, you know, the thousands of years that, you know, you you can trace your lineage to, but find the house, you know, find the actual house. And so, and I will never go out of my way to tell other people that they don't exist or that they, their, their uh, lineage doesn't exist. But I, so I think it's kind of crazy to be a Palestine denier. Yeah. Well, and then also <laughs> when know? it comes like to culture and food, I mean, right. you know, we eat uh, pizza here. We don't claim it's uh, American. We say right. it's Italian. We're probably one of the most popular things, right, is eating pizza in this country and pasta. We know it's Italian. True. We or Mexi- sushi, right? We, we love sushi. We don't claim that this is like... A, an American invention, right? Right. There might be some modifications, mm-hmm. but for some reason, there is this kind of like Drive. obsession mm-hmm. to claim Palestinian cuisine, not only the land, mm-hmm. and and I don't want to get because we're not going to talk about a lot of things like also clothing, right? You know, and fashion, or whatever. But it's also claiming claiming the Palestinian cuisine. Because every time I open it, like something, I open not only, you know, Haaretz or Israeli media, it's it's even listed as such in the New York Times and other publications. So if they, they I guess they feel if they drive the alternative facts often enough that it will become truth. But there are a lot of amazing Palestinians that are doing groundwork, a lot of Palestinian foodies that are taking it very seriously to bring this cuisine to the forefront. There's a hospital, like a society in Palestine that's culturally holding on to the, these vestiges, talking about uh, artisanal food. There are a lot of bloggers on Instagram, Palestinian bloggers. Uh, I can think of Almond and Fig, for example. She's mm-hmm. Palestinian that are really bringing to light all of these beautiful cultural and traditions. And while they can talk about it in a menu perspective and say, oh, well, this is Israeli, we have the stories. We have, we have like the, the stories from our great-grandmothers and our great-grandfathers and how it connects to the actual food of the land. And you, you just can't, you can't, it, you can't beat that. You know, when, we, when you have the actual stories connected to the land, there's something very special about that that you can't erase. And, uh, you know, we, we're approaching Christmas time now. Mm-hmm. And I'll go back to what's your favorite recipe mm-hmm. for people to cook during the holidays. Right. But uh, for many people, you know, 
you know, you think about Christmas and people buy their Christmas tree and the Santa Claus. I mean, it's all, this is all kind of foreign. Right, it in, is. In, in, in a way, or watching mass, let's say, from the Vatican. Mm -hmm. But not too many people know that uh, Palestinian Christians are the first Christians. You're right. It's, it's actually really sad. I just talked to this couple that traveled there, and they're Christian. And I said, well, did you go to the Church of Nativity where Jesus was born? And they said, no. And I said, why? They said, because we were warned it's in Bethlehem, which is a Palestinian town. We were warned that it was going to be dangerous. And I'm like, are you kidding me? You're a Christian. You went to the Holy Land and you didn't go to the church where Jesus was born simply because Bethlehem is a Palestinian town. Bethlehem is a very safe town. It's full of lots of tourists. Please, if you are to go to any church in the world, forget the Vatican, no offense, Go to the Church of Nativity because nothing feels more Jesus-like than that church. It's a small, simple church. You have to duck to get into it. It's not handled like a Disneyland church where mm -hmm. they funnel you in. I mean, there is a line to get in. But once you're in, you feel that tranquility and serenity that you're supposed to feel when you go to a place like that. And please don't be afraid by any red signs that say, don't go in. Palestinians want to, especially Christians, they're only 2% of the population there. They could use all the tourism that they can get. And right now they are a dying breed. They're almost near extinction. And they're the living stones of Christianity. I mean, they literally are the first Christians. It happened there in Bethlehem, not in like Texas or Alabama or the other places where they claim to be Christian. But sadly, they don't. They, well, this they, is they, the thing. You know, I mean, this, like, is, this is the kind of the big misconception is... Uh, all uh, the pilgrimage that comes from the United States, uh, mm -hmm. it's mostly evangelicals. Right. And they go on these different tours. Mm -hmm. They stay uh, in Tel Aviv or they stay in Jerusalem in Israeli hotels. Right. They have uh, Israeli guides telling them the history of Jesus mm -hmm. and the history of the Dome of the Rock and the history, you know, they don't get Palestinian guides. Right. And they're steered quickly in and out just to kind of like, uh, like you said, like, like a, cattle, like cattle, uh, like just Disneyland, Disneyland, or see this and like check marks when, mm -hmm. when, you know, the whole pilgrimage is, is all about is visiting the Church of Nativity, visiting the sepulcher, going yeah. to Nazareth, going to the Jordan River. Part of the reason why many don't go take them to Bethlehem is because they've got that hideous wall that they've built all around the town. I mean, you think this is the town where Jesus was born and they have this hideous apartheid wall built all around it. And so they want to avoid it. And they, they are able now to have these tourism, these guides, take people from the United States there without seeing a single wall. So it's like designed for a reason, so that they could go see the tourist sites and get out without having to see the nuance, without seeing the oppression and the sadness and the lack of freedom of many of these Christians who cannot go to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre unless they get a special permit months in advance. They're not free to worship where they want. So uh, so when you are guests, yeah. uh, what I call them the people who traveled with you guys are guests, really, guests. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, they were, I'm sure they visited Palestinian homes and they Absolutely. were welcomed warmly. Absolutely, yes. What was their last impression? Kind of like once they left, what's kind of like, how did you describe their feeling? Their feeling was that they felt that the Palestinians were, A, the most hospitable people they've ever met in their lives, and they could not believe the welcome arms that they were received everywhere, in homes, in churches, in cultural centers, even by uh, some pa Palestinian, like the mayor, they were treated warmly and respectfully, and they didn't know, they thought Palestinians were going to be hostile to Americans, but Palestinians are able to differentiate between the government and the citizen, uh, citizens, and they welcome Americans to go there and tell their story. The other thing they were deeply affected by was the Palestinian resiliency, that they're able to deal with so many difficulties on from their daily life, from, you know, six-hour commute times to water not turned off on every day to families that have been imprisoned and tortured and they still manage to have a smile on their face and to see the beauty of life despite all of their struggles and still embrace Americans despite uh, a lot of this tax dollars going to fund this oppression. Uh, that was really probably one of the most poignant um, 
points to them uh, that they remember. No, I think I think this is very important. What you're doing with uh, with your group, and of course, uh, I I think I think it's very important for people to visit. Mm-hmm not only for Palestinians to visit and to stay connected, but to invite a guest or guests with them. Yes. Because unless people are blind, once they see the truth, you just can't argue. You can't. Uh, you, can argue you, you, that, can't you can't unsee can the, the truth fact. after so you've seen the truth. So we have a few minutes left. Yeah. And like you see, time flies when, you're, when you come on this oh, show. Oh, I know. It always flies. <laughs> you know. What's your favorite recipe for the holidays? What can I find in this book if I am lazy, which I am? Oh, if you're lazy. Well, okay. Well, uh, <laughs> lazy. And I want to cook something great and I want to impress impress somebody. Okay. And say, like, I know my stuff. Right. And I'm going to serve you a great meal for the, for the holiday, a Middle Eastern meal. Mm-hmm. If I were to pick one of my favorites, it would have to be Makluba which is upside down, that does have more steps entailed. It mean, Makluba means turned upside down. So if you could imagine a big pot filled with uh, rice, caramelized onions, uh, roasted cauliflower, either lamb or chicken, and it's cooked in like beautiful aromatic spices, allspice, a bit of cumin, then it's inverted upside down. So it's like a big fat savory cake that everyone can dig into. Mm-hmm. Nothing says communal eating more than makluba, in my opinion. That's definitely one of my all-time favorites. And it's uh, it's some it's, it's for the novice. Yeah, a no- the novice we, I break really it down so that a novice can, can do follow it. it. Absolutely. And what, yeah. what good condiments go well with that? With makluba, I suggest a, a dollop of good old-fashioned yogurt, like full-fat yogurt that they like to mix in with the rice. And salata, and salata baladia, salata baladia. I mean, it goes with anything, which it means uh, salad of the land, I guess, or salad of my land, or how would you directly translate salad to Town salad or Town home, sa- home salad. Something yeah, yeah. It's basically the cucumber tomato salad yeah. with uh, some onions, olive oil, lemon juice. It goes with everything. Uh, and I would suggest that with the, with the makluba. And for dessert? Knafa! Of course. <laughs> I was like, and knafa. Knafa, of course. Use a Mexican farmer cheese. We're here in California. That works great in terms of... Uh, and we have, we have uh, yeah. a lot of these ingredients here. We're lucky. Yeah, we're, we're so California lucky in California. Lucky Mexican to... farmer cheese, like Mexicans got it going on with this cheese, man. I use it all the time with the canafa. It's great. It's a great sub. Well, you've yeah. been listening to Blanche Shaheen, her new book, Feast in the Middle East. Mm-hmm. Get it. Go to her website. Get your copy for the holidays. And... I'm telling you, uh, I was looking at it, and I was looking at all these great recipes, and it has beautiful pictures, by the way, step by step, giving you all the guidelines, especially for the novices. And if you're not a novice, you know, try to at least uh, contribute to this creation, because, like, I'm sure when people cook something and they say, well... Uh, and they can reach on your on your YouTube channel and say ask you a question and say well how how do you do it for example vegetarian if I'm a vegetarian oh I have vegetarian or, options or if, or if I'm a vegan can can we have a makluba for vegetarians mm-hmm. oh absolutely you just take out the meat part you can make a great vegetable broth and do put put a bunch of like roasted eggplants carrots uh, and cauliflower well, the thing is this is for for uh, cooks that are novice, but also cooks that ha- have been cooking for many years. It gives them different options, different ideas, something to just inspire them to get cooking uh, for the family. So, Well, again, yeah. thank you. It was always a pleasure. Always a pleasure to see you. Always. Yes, yeah. and this is Arab Talk on KPO San Francisco. We will talk to you next week and same time, same place. And the last thing we want to ask you is make sure you support KPO. KPO.